Last week, we came to probably the most famous conversion story in all of the Bible, conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Paul in Acts 9. So I'm going to have you turn to that, Acts chapter 9, and what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and, uh, and read that passage again, uh, make some introductory remarks, and then uh, we'll just jump right in here, okay? Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light flashed from heaven. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with stood Saul. They're speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Um, we, we talked about transformation, Christian conversion last week. And here's what we said, okay? We said that Christianity is about transformation. Christianity is about total and utter transformation. Christianity is not about moral reformation. Difference? Moral reformation is something you do. Christian transformation is something that's done to you. Moral reformation is about you. T- <laughs> we think Christianity is like becoming Christian is like taking vitamins. You know, we take vitamins and we become nicer people, we become better people. Become- Where do we get that from? Christianity is not about you becoming a nice person, a better person. Christianity says when God, the, the God, the creator God, by his spirit enters your life, you don't just become a better person, you become a totally different person. Utterly changes you from inside out, upside down, utterly changes you. You are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Christian transformation is about this radical change from the inside out. It's not about moral reformation. Please, can we get, can we get on board with that? Christianity is not about you becoming a better person. See, that's why, erroneously, that's how we think of it. So here's what we think of Christian transformation or conversion. We say that becoming a Christian, we think it's like, you know, God, come into my life and help me with my agendas. You know, help me be a better whatever. And God says, I want to come into your life and help you be better anything. I want to come into your life and help you be a brand new creation. God, will you come and help me be a better king? What? (laughs) How come? I'm not about coming into your life and helping you be a better king. This is the creator of the universe you're talking about, man. He comes into your life and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring about a whole new agenda. I'm going to bring about a whole new thing in your life. Christianity is about radical conversion. The Christian movement in the early century grew because people were converted, okay? They didn't just become nicer people. They didn't just become better people. They became totally, utterly changed, different people. When they were thrown to the lions, they sang. When they were burned at the stake, they forgave their persecutors. Radical, utter change. And people took notice. As a result, their lives transformed and changed. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Do you understand that Christianity is, is about an utter, total transformation? Okay, so, so, so here's the good news about Christianity, okay? You need to hear this morning. That means that there's nothing in your past or your present that God can't overcome. 
Nothing. Nada. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care. I don't care if you've, I don't care if you've been to the gates of hell. The Bible says nobody is too evil for God to forgive. Nobody is too lost for God to find. Nobody is too hard-hearted for God to break through. Nobody. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Oh, man. That's what Christianity says. It's about this radical. That means that the great news of the gospel is we don't have to live the way we used to live because we are not the people we used to be. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Is that true of us? Today we look at, as we did last week, the, probably the most famous conversion story in all of the New Testament is conversion of Saul to Paul. And as I said last week, you guys, you know, don't get hung up by the, by the drama. You know what I mean? The light. The sound, you know, knocked off the horse. And we kind of look at that and go, that didn't happen to me, you know. I didn't mean to make fun last week. And I had somebody go, why are you knocking on people that like got saved when they were like five years old at a Bible camp? I'm like, I'm not knocking that, you know. I'm just saying. Some of us, you know, five years old, we knelt down to Jesus come into my life and went back to our rooms and ate Doritos and that was it, you know. And then for the rest of us, rest of us, our story is like, oh, I was an alcoholic. I was an addict. I was sleeping. I was in the gutter of gutters, man. And God grabbed a hold of me. Five years old, church camp, eating Doritos. I know I'm Doritos, Cheetos, whatever, whatever, you know, substitute whatever, bad food, junk food, okay? Or, or life has been radically transformed and changed from the gates of hell. God does both. Where would you be today if God hadn't done this in your life? Anybody thankful? Yeah. I don't know, you know, sometimes, I know sometimes, see, sometimes, because our church is like half-half. Our church is like half of the people, you know, good, nice church people grew up in church, you know, but then really got tired of religion, fundamentalism, walked away, now coming back. And then we got the other half who are like, church. (laughs) We have everybody. Isn't that good thing? It's diversity of the body of Christ. It's beautiful. Okay, anyway. I am really thirsty. Can somebody get me some water? Pastor Michael normally does this for me, but he's preoccupied this morning, apparently. Are you sick? Thank you, man. You're awesome. Mm. Okay. I'm just kidding. There's nothing in there. Okay. There's nothing in there. Okay. Here's, uh, you guys are very, like, tense this morning, so, okay, anyway. Um, You guys... I don't have time. I'm going to just briefly, those of you that missed last Sunday, you missed something. So we're just going to, highlights of last Sunday, Christian conversion, just to put them up, the Christian conversion is a necessity for everyone. We also said that Christian conversion is a possibility for anyone. By the way, after last week, uh, anybody know, oh, what is his name? Oh, Joseph Coney is his name? Somebody know? Yeah, Joseph Coney. He is a, a rebel leader in Uganda, responsible for possibly killing of. 40-some thousand people responsible for uh, enlisting children in the army to commit atrocities, so on and so forth. Anyway, a guy in our church was telling me that uh, he and his family were praying, and his wife had the audacity to pray that that guy would become a Christian. And he said he was sitting here last Sunday and was reminded, isn't that what the gospel is for? 
So it's a good reminder to him, possibility for anyone. Christian conversion is initiated by God himself. And lastly, Christian conversion is really a process. And we said last week that even for someone like Saul, who in this story seemingly like, how, how in the world do you see a process? Man, it's light, lightning, uh, you know, sound, and he becomes a Christian. But as we saw last week, maybe perhaps as we look throughout some of the you know, highlights in the New Testament of Paul's life, that, that, that Stephen had a life impact in him. Stephen's sermon most uh, more, more clearly in, in Acts chapter 7 had a life-changing impact in, in Paul. So much so that he says in Acts 26, as he talked about a conversion, Jesus says, why do you persecute me? And then he says, Saul, I'm goading you. Remember that last week? I'm goading you. He's saying, I've been in process to get your attention. I've been in process. And you know, here's the thing. Any one of us in here who has become a Christian or are a Christian, majority of our stories went along the lines of, yeah, there were moments in my life where I can look back and say, God was doing something there. God used her. God used him. God used that. There were things in my life that was happening. Same thing with Saul. Same thing with Saul. He comes, he comes confronted with his religion fundamentalism, his way of viewing God via Stephen's sermon. And he goes ballistic and he's changed. Now here's the thing. Uh, I just say all that to say, and this is a small insight, but I want to throw this out. Do you realize that maybe, maybe, maybe in Stephen's ministry his whole life, he had one convert. <laughs> he died real young. Maybe in Stephen's life, he had one guy that he impacted. And that guy was Saul, who would become Paul, who would become probably the greatest leader in Christian movement. So I just thought, you know, for those of you that are going, is anything I'm doing useful? Is anything I'm doing making a difference? Maybe in your work, in your classroom, maybe in that family, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe, maybe, maybe one person that gets impacted by you might be somebody that God uses to powerfully change the world. Isn't that cool? Now, here's the thing about that. Here's the thing about that I really love. So what was it about Stephen, though, that impacted Saul? Here it is. Real quick, life application, move on. When Stephen's life was falling apart, the guy's getting stoned to death. When he's falling apart, he didn't fall apart. When Stephen's life was falling apart, he didn't fall apart. He fixes his eyes on Jesus, and he dies forgiving his enemies. Here it is. You want to impact your friends? You want to impact your workplace? How do you respect, or how do you respond when your life is falling apart? You better believe they're looking. You better believe they're watching. They're going, how are you responding? You believe in this God? Do you believe your theology? Do you believe your Christian religion? Do you believe it? How do you respond when your life is falling apart? Don't you fall apart. If you're falling apart when your life is falling apart, what evidence is there of this faith in this amazing God who is at work? You hear what I'm saying? It's one of the most powerful evidences I think of how God is at work in our lives. How do you respond? that when your life is falling apart how do you respond why did the early christians make such a drastic uh, impact in the culture around them how do you think they responded when they saw people being burned as human torches and they forgave they died with that kind of courage and contentment their life is falling apart and they're going if i was you i would curse god i would curse everybody and i would die a bitter death and they saw men and women forgave Giving people that were destroying, persecuting them. How do you respond when your life is falling apart? You fall apart? Okay. Let's move on. Uh, we're going to finish this story today, and I got three principles out there for you. I'll throw them out. Verses four to five. Christian conversion involves encountering the untamed God. Christian conversion involves encountering the untamed God. Uh, I love this, you guys. By the way, props to C.S. Lewis. It's his idea, okay? Here it is. 
uh, you notice that uh, Paul does something interesting. When he encounters God, he says this. He says, who, who are you, Lord? Who, who is this? Why is he asking? Here's the reason why. Paul, up to that point, has an image, an idea of who God is. He has a belief system. Here it is. God, he's monotheist. Mo, mono, he's a, what am I trying to say? Monotheistic. <laughs> Jews believe there's one God. And the thought of Jesus Christ, a man being God, crazy. Can't happen. Not possible. Secondly, Stephen preaches Old Testament temple, the scriptures, the law, the prophets, sacrificial system, all obsolete because Jesus Christ has come to fulfill it. And then he's going, what happened to my, what's going to happen to the Bible, the Old Testament? That's going to become not possible. Paul, up until this point, has a clear-cut idea of who God is. And who, what is that idea? Here it is. You ready? It's an idea of a God that he wants to believe in. It's an idea of God that he wants to believe in, that he has come to expect. It's a God of his reality. It's a God of his ideas. He says, God can be this, God can't be that. God can be this, God can't be that. On the road to Damascus, he encounters the God who says what? Um, I have my own reality, thank you very much. I am the way I am, not the way you want me to be. Are you tracking so far? Okay, now check this out, okay? Why is that important? Here it is. Uh, here's the culture we live in, okay? I'm at a Starbucks, right? I'm behind somebody ordering a drink, okay? This woman says, I will have, and then lists 10 different descriptions of her coffee drink. You know, soy latte, non-fat, little touch of this, da-da-da-da-da, you know? I'm like grande black guy, you know? It's coffee with two shots, by the way. 10, why, why? Do you know that there are 20,000 drink permutations that Starbucks has? Yeah, that's all. Okay, that's all. Okay. Uh, here's another thing. Here's another thing. Maybe those of you, you know, I have my iPod, iTunes. So here's the thing. I don't have to buy whole albums anymore, right? And listen to it and go, that sucks, that sucks, that sucks. Oh, that's a great song. That sucks, that's oh, great. I paid 10 bucks for two songs that I really like. Here's what we do. We've got 100,000 songs from a playlist that we get to choose. We get to customize. You get to order your own car, man. Color, steering wheel, whatever. You get to order your own shoes. What am I saying? Maybe, maybe, maybe the culture that we live in says, I get to customize how I like things. Maybe our culture wants to customize how we like God. I don't know. Maybe. Far-fetched. You know. Maybe we customize God. Maybe the idea of who God is, who he says he is, is offensive to our culture. So there are some of you here today, let me be gentle, who says, I like that about God, so I like that. I like that about God. Now, here's the thing. I talk to non-Christians, right? And I ask them. I go, they say, you know what? Here's the God that I believe. I believe that God accepts everybody no matter what they believe. Okay, so I ask them. I go, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that God is somebody who accepts everybody no matter what they believe? And you know what they eventually say, a lot of them? Because I want to believe that God is somebody who accepts everybody regardless of what they believe. Why is it a problem? Here's the problem. It may work for a little bit, you know? It may work for a little bit. Because here's the thing. When I talk to non-Christians, I hate it when the first thing they ask is, do you believe in hell? I don't know, why you got to go there? You know what I mean? Like, can we, like, conversation 10 maybe, you know? Like, hell? Like, first conversation, really? Really? You know, hell, first conversation, you know? But here's what I'm saying. They have a notion of a God who is all-loving but not just, Right? Now, here's the problem. problem with that is that God will never convert you. That God will never change you. That God will never transform you. That God will never make you into a courageous from a coward. That God will never ease anxiety of your heart. That God will never, ever change you from a restless person to a content person. Why? How does a God who's a product of your heart change your heart? How does a God you made up 
Let, let, me, let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean. Look at this passage here, okay? Look at this passage here. Yeah, hopefully you guys get off. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. How many of you guys know the experience of having your heart condemn you? Anybody? You know, your heart comes along and says, you're worthless. Anybody? Your heart comes along and says, you're pathetic. Your heart says, you're evil. Your heart says, you're no. How many of you know that? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If your God is somebody you created in your own mind, because he, you know, fits your sensibilities. How does that God come to you when your heart's going, you're guilty? Who's going to come and say, you're not? When your God's saying, you're worthless, who's going to come and say, but you're not? If your heart says, you can't possibly be forgiven. If your God is somebody your heart created, how does that God change you? Okay, does this make sense to anybody? Say Amen. If your God is a product of your imagination or things that you like, you like about you, that God will never change you. Because he's a product of you. He's a product of you. Your heart's going, you're worthless, condemnation. But my God is my heart. It's creation. And so I, you need something beyond that to come and say, you're not in condemnation. <sighs> You need to encounter the untamed God. He is the way he is. He's there. He's not the way you want him to be. And you know what? Here's some scary things about him. You know what I mean? I like that though. Anybody else? I like the fact that God is, you know, I mean, he's huge. He's big. You know what I mean? He's not this cuddly little, you know, like, whoa. I mean, there's some scary, like, things about him. You know, there's some, there's some awe-inspiring things about him. I like that about God. I like that about God. He's a God who is there, not where you want him to be. And until you have a God like that, you don't have a real God. And if you don't have a real God, you're never going to be changed. You're never going to be transformed. You're never, ever going to be. Now, how do you get to know this God, the real God? The Bible. Immediately, of course, objection. Some people go, that's it. See, I had a guy three weeks ago come up and say, I'm interested in God, but the Bible, I don't like the Bible so much. I said, why? what it boils down to. There are things in there that I don't like. There are things that he says I hate. There are things that are offensive. That's why. I get, why? Is that a problem? Here's a problem. Can you have a relationship with anybody? Anybody where they can't challenge you? They can't come back at can you? Is that a relationship? For example, let me give you an example. My wife and I, you know, it's the whole Stepford Wives and, you know, my wife and I, you know, is it a real marriage if my wife says, yes, honey, yes, honey, yes, dear, yes, honey, you know, and I said this morning, you know, I sometimes like, yeah, God, actually, that would be pretty nice. But, you know, that's only sometimes, sometimes. But other times, I am glad that when I do things, she goes, that's dumb. Why do you do that? I say some things, why do you say that? Do you really believe that? Why? It's a real relationship. You want a God with a real relationship? You want a God not of your imagination? Do you know what? This God has to be able to say to you, you don't like that? Too bad, that's who I am. You find that offensive? Deal with it. Wrestle with it a little bit. That, that, that offends your sensibilities? Well, you know, it's a real relationship, right? So you come back a little bit after you've met it. Do you hear what I'm saying? How do you have a real relationship with somebody when you go, I like that, I don't like that, so I'm going to take what I like? It's a God of your imagination, and that God will never change you. Let me put it this way. Unless you have a God who tells you things that you don't want to be true, you'll never be changed when this God comes and tells you things that are too good to be true. Let me say it again. 
unless you have a God who comes and tells you things you don't want to be true. God, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. You'll never be changed when this same God comes and tells you things that are too good to be true. Like you're forgiven. Like you're accepted. You're mine. I love you. Unless you have a God who could tell you things, you're like, oh, do you mean that? Yes, I do. Ah, oh, do I have to? Yes, you do. You'll never be changed when this God comes and says, do you know how much I love It really doesn't matter what you think about him. At the end of the day, what really matters is what he thinks about you. The real God. The real God. Have you met him? Have you met him? I don't care if you've been going to church all your life. The untamed God, he is the way he is. Have you met him? Have you met him? Second principle from this, again, it's verse four or five. Significance of the statement when, when Saul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, or Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And to which Saul could have said, if we, you know, read between the lines, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting a bunch of Christians, call themselves the way, following this crazy Messiah called Jesus. They think he's risen from the dead. Da, 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 da. I'm not and Jesus says, no, no, that's, that's me. See, what you do to them, you do to me. What you're doing to them, you are doing to me right now. Jesus is literally saying there is such close solidarity between me and them that what you're doing to them, you're doing to me. Okay, so there's good news and bad news here. Which one do you want first? Good news or bad news? Why is it always the bad news first? Like, is this our generation? We're just cynical, just, you know... Tell me the bad news first, because I know there's no good news. No, there's really good news. Really, really. Okay, you want the bad news first? Okay, I'll tell you the bad news first. That's my style anyway. Here it is. <laughs> I've done that. I've done that before, and I really didn't have any good news, you know. I go, do you want good news or bad news? Bad news. So here's the bad news. They go, where's the good news? I lied. I <laughs> I'm not going to do that this morning, though, Okay. Because I'm a Christian man, for crying out loud, okay? I believe in the gospel, and I don't lie. Here's the bad news. See, here's the thing. You and I so misunderstand sin. You and I so misunderstand what it means to be apart from God. Listen to this, okay? The Bible says that we're persecutors of God. Christian or not? Do you know this? That we're enemies of God. Romans chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. We are hostile to God. Here's what I mean by that. Sin is not just doing bad things and disobedience. The essence of sin, and if you've come to our church any length of time, you hear this so essence of sin is not we're just failing God. Essence of sin, we're fighting God. That's the essence of sin. Everything that you and I do is because at the core of it, we don't want God to control. We don't want God to rule. We don't want that. We want to be our own gods. We want to be in control of our own lives. How many of you struggle with this? Anybody? We want to be in control of our own lives. We want to run things the way we, we want to run the show. That's the essence of sin. It's not just that we're failing God, doing some things we shouldn't. At the essence of sin is that we're fighting. We resent God's control over our lives. And we're constantly looking for ways and things to say, my life, the way I want to do it, yours. That's the battle of humanity. Now, this so struck Paul that in Romans chapter 5, Romans 8, Ephesians 2, he says, it's not actually the religious, religious people. Churchy people struggle with this more than non-church people. He says, because we obey, because we do good things, we follow the law, we come to God and we go, God, you have no right over my life. Look at all the stuff that I do for you. So when things go bad, I get real angry at you or I get real angry at myself. We resent God's control. Now, if you're going, uh, I don't think I'm fighting God. Okay, some diagnostic questions. You ready? Just to help us along the way. How do you know you're fighting God? Not just faith. Uh, are you willing to trust God in that area, no matter whether you understand it or not? 
Think about that area really shallow right now. Are you willing to trust God in that area, regardless of whether you understand what in the world God is doing or not? Second diagnostic question. Am I willing, are you willing to thank God for whatever happens in that area, whether you like the outcome or not? Are you willing to thank God and say, God, regardless of what the outcome is, I thank you, I praise you, because you're God, I'm not. And you know what you're doing, and I don't. Persecutors of God, fighting God. Okay, lastly, am I willing to obey God? <laughs> this is hard. Am I, are you willing to obey God in that area, whether you agree with him or not? Oh, man. <laughs> well, I'm just not going to do it. Why? I disagree. It's not just disobedience saying, God, I'm in control, not you. It's me. The bad news is that we are persecutors of God. We're far worse than we think we are. <laughs> the bad news is we're not just disobeying God. We are fighting God, hostile towards God. I know it's harsh language, but at the end of the day, when you and I go, I'm at the center of my universe, thank you very much. The good news. The good news is that because of who Christ and what he has done, everything that's true of him is true of you. Everything that's true of him is true of you. You go in. Okay, whatever. All right. What's he doing? What's he doing? Why's he got Tupperware? I could hear you, you know. I'm not deaf. This to me is one of the biggest reasons why I think we as Christians don't live joy-filled lives like Paul did. Because we think we know, we say we know, but we really don't. What it is that happened to us via Christ, we really don't. Let me tell you what happened, okay? Can you see God? Okay. All right, so here's the deal, okay? Here's what scripture says happened to you, okay? This is what Jesus means when he says, why are you persecuting them when you do that, you do it to me? Now, solidarity, identity with Christ. Watch, check this out. Look at these scripture passages, okay? I'm just going to go right. I'm not making this up. Watch. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rulers of the... Let me see a scripture here, okay? Uh, uh, ways of this ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, check this out. This is you. Can you, can you see? This is you. Okay, I know. You're not square, you're not Tupperware, but this is you, okay? Just use your imagination. This is you. Here's what the Bible says, okay? Here's what the Bible says. At one time, you and I, that's where we were, okay? Don't get freaked out of my fact that you're inside Satan, okay? Like, I'm not inside Satan. What is that? Just, just don't freak out, okay? Just, it's just an illustration, okay? <laughs> the Bible says, <laughs> I got an email today. Where does it say that I'm inside Satan? <laughs> Chill out, okay? So check this out. Satan, sin, okay? The Bible says, the Bible says one time we were in sin. We're in sin, in your transgressions. You know what that means? That means that we're not just hovering around sin. That means we're not just, you know, once in a while doing bad things. The Bible says we are enslaved to sin. The Bible says we cannot not sin. The Bible says we are hostile enemies of God. By the way, this isn't all that far-fetched for, is it, for us? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, sin, it's a fact, yeah. Bible says we are in, in this, in it, lost, unable to find God, spiritually dead, not sick, spiritually dead, in sin. What happened? For he has rescued us from the kingdom of dark, dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of the soul. Check this out. Check this out. This is you. 
You were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, the influence of sin, influence of Satan, and you were brought into where? In where? You are in where? Say it with me. Jesus, where are you right now? Where are you right now? In Je- when God sees you, where are you right now? Now check this out. It gets better, okay? God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you. So here's, you know, mini Jesus, okay? Small Jesus, we're big G, small Jesus, right? Here's small Jesus, right? Check this out. Check this out. No, this is like, this is so, so incredible. Not only are you, check this out. Not only are you in Jesus in such a way that when God sees you, God sees Jesus. Everything that's true about Jesus is true of you. Jesus Christ also is in you. He is in you. And he's not going anywhere, okay? He is in you. You are secure. You are in there for good, okay? And check this out. So you, not only is Christ in you, you are in Christ. Does that seem secure? Does that seem secure? Does that seem secure? Can this ever go into here again? No! Who are you? You are in Jesus. When God sees you, he doesn't see you, and then he sees Jesus. When he sees Jesus, he sees you. When he sees the beauty of Jesus, he sees the beauty of you. Do you get that? Oh, man! But it gets better. Oh, yes, because it also says, Jesus, I am in my Father. You are in me, and I'm in you. So, going backwards, Jesus is, is, Jesus is in us. We are in Jesus. And where is Jesus? Jesus is where? Come on, say it with me now. He is where? In God. So where are you right now? You are where? You are in God. Is that good news? Heck yeah, it is. It's great news. It's great news. It's phenomenal news. But here's the question, child of God, you say you are. Do you get, has this penetrated your heart? Has this melted your soul? Huh? That everything that is true of Jesus is true of you. That the Bible says in Romans, when, so this is, this is why we can have this imagery. When, when Jesus Christ died to sin and he was buried, guess who else died to sin? You, me. And then when he was resurrected to life, guess who else was resurrected to life? You and me. One last passage. Check this out. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hey, check this out. If Christ is seated at the right hand of God, where are you right now? Where are you? Right hand. I know. You're going, do, 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 do. What is that? I'm like seated on a pew in SDA church on April 5th, 2009. Thank you very much. You know what the Bible says? No, that's what you think. In reality, in eternity, you are right now so secure. So in Christ, you are seated at the right hand of God. This is unbelievable news. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When God who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Clap if you think that's great news. Is that good news? That's amazing news, man. That's amazing news. That's amazing news. This is the reason why. Look, this is the reason why. Look, diagnostic question. Whether you know somebody's a Christian, right? If you ask somebody, are you a Christian? And somebody goes, I don't know. I'm trying. 
I'm trying. Finished. Done. Over with. In Christ. Never going to change. But you know, I've been kind of disobedient, not doing well. Not the issue. Where are you? You are where? In Christ. Christ. In you. You are in God. If you want to know whether somebody is a Christian, here's a diagnostic question. How much does that person make of being a child of God and having God as his father? Does it just blow you away? Does it just melt your heart? Does it just go, ah, ah? There's really no need to talk about anything else, is there? I mean, really, is this phenomenal news? Is this phenomenal news? This is why I say all the time in our church, the gospel, two things. It's an assessment of yourself that's far worse than you actually think, but it's an assessment of yourself that's far better than what you think. What do I mean? The gospel says at one time, just, let's bring Satan back up here just for now, okay? He got a butt kicking, but you know. Okay, so here's Satan, right? The Bible says one time you and I were innocent. It's not just that we were doing bad things. The Bible says we were hostile to God. We're enemies of God. We don't, th- that's who we were. That's who we were. So you have to understand if you're not a Christian or if you're a Christian, the essence of sin right now as you stand in your day, if you want a relationship with God, you have to come to recognize it's not just, you know, I could be a better person. The Bible says, no, no, no. You want to be in control of your life and you don't want to let God live. You want to be at the center of the universe. And repentance starts with you going, I no longer want to live that way. But the good news, the gospel also says, the good news is not about what you do, what you've done. The good news is about what Christ has done. The good news is that you are far better than you ever thought. You are far better. You are far holier. You are far more righteous. You are far more, you are far more beautiful than you actually believe. Because it's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. That means it's about your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. It's about his righteousness, his redemption, his sanctification. He was made to be your righteousness, be your redemption, be your sanctification. Here it is. So embrace it. Love on it. This has to be the truth that will melt our hearts. This has to be. Why do you think I talk about this so often? Does it really help you if I say, here are the five principles how you can get overcome your low self-esteem. Here's six principles how you can. If you don't get this, it doesn't matter what anybody tells you, how many sermons you hear. This is at the core of everything. Diagnostic questions. Here it is. Do you understand the honor of that? Do you understand the honor of that? Paul did. He understood. That's why when you go home, if you can, type in in Christ in New Testament, how many times that word in Christ or Christ appears in the New Testament. In the epistles of Paul, that was it. That's the whole thing. He spun it out again and again. And the more he spun it out, the more he was convicted. The more he spun it out, the more he was changed over and over again. It's that thing that was at the center of Paul's life. That's why when you also read his letters, there's incredible poise, incredible contempt, an incredible, incredible sense of strength and courage. Why? He's going, well, why, why would I ever feel insecure again when I have the security of the Father? Why would I ever be floored by what other people think of me and judgment of other people when I've already been judged by the only judge in the, mass, in, in the universe that really matters and his judgment is forgiven, not guilty, mine, beloved. Why, why would anybody else judgment matter? I don't care what they think. I don't even care what I think. Do you, get, do, you get, do you understand the honor of that? Do you understand the honor of that church? Do you understand the honor of that Christian? Do you understand the honor of that? Do you know what that means? That means, listen, you are not who your past tells you you are. Amen? You are not who your present tells you you are. You are not who your parents told you you were. You are not who you even think you say you are. You are who God says you are. And in God, you are righteous, holy, redeemed, saved, forgiven, loved. It's this good news. I don't know what else to say to you guys except to say if you're not blown away by that, if you're not blown away by that, 
secondly, do you understand the strength of that? And this is one of those things that just, you know, one of the things, as I was preaching at 9 o'clock service, a guy said, Pastor Peter, I'm really, a question, I said, what is it? And he's like, but you're not saying that because of all those things that we're not going to suffer, we're not going to have struggles, we're not going to, you know, go through difficult times, right? And I'm like, man, that's the reason why what I'm saying should be even more of an encouragement. So here's the thing. Because what God says we could enjoy, what God says we could experience is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of life. That's where the encouragement is. What hope is there if, you know, as long as the things are going really well, I feel secure. You know, as long as money in the bank, healthy, you know, as long as those things are going well, I just feel like I can. What, what difference is there between that a conversion transformation of Christ and someone else who doesn't believe? It is the ability to go, my life is falling apart, but I am in Christ for crying out loud. I am in Christ. He has died and he has risen again. And there's hope. But the reason why I brought that is in the midst of that, though, here's what the Bible says. Do you see that? Jesus says, you and I are so identified with you so in such solidarity that, you know, when they stab you, it's like stabbing me. When they persecute you, it's like persecuting me. When they hurt you, it's like hurting me. See, Christianity doesn't have all the answers to why people suffer. But Christianity does say why or what, what isn't. Here's what I mean. You know for a fact that the reason why we suffer is not because God doesn't care. God cares so much, he took on flesh and bone, suffered the worst, most atrocious death in the world so that he could end suffering once and for all. And that God says, even in heaven right now, I suffer when you suffer. We might not have all the answers to why people suffer, but one thing we can't accuse God of is saying, you don't care. He cares beyond our understanding. He has so enmeshed himself, so bound himself to our heart that he says he suffers when we suffer. And I don't know. You try wrapping your brain around that because I'm trying to understand that, you know. I'm trying to understand what, what that is like. And the only example I can give, like I've told you guys before this, the only example I can give is I've been as a pastor to some of the worst things. I've been there when a mom in our church gave birth to a stillborn child. First child, a stillborn child. I've been there. Minutes after the child was born. There are no words I can speak. There are no words I can speak. There's nothing, nothing that I can say at that moment to try and encourage that mother. The only thing that I could do is just to be present with. This Jesus says, my redemptive plan wasn't from heavens where it's going to be nice and sanitary. He says, I am going to take on flesh and bone and become like He knows what it's like to lose a son. He knows what it's like to be tortured. He knows what it's like to suffer. A third ramification. Do you understand, or do you understand the ramifications of that? And you know what? I don't have a lot of time you guys to spend on this. Let me illustrate it this way, okay? Let me illustrate it this way. Here's how you and I view, view conversion and becoming a Christian, okay? Here's how. We say, here's, here's, okay, so here's you. We say, Jesus, here's what it means to be a Christian, right? I, I've done some bad things. I need your forgiveness. Will you come into my life and forgive me and live my life? So that's what he does, right? Christ comes and he, right? And, and we view our relationship with God like this, right? It's like us over here, God's kind of over here, Jesus Christ. And, and we have this theology that says it's a very personal faith and it's kind of my own thing. I don't need the church. You know, I like Jesus, but I don't need the church. We say those kinds of things. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says it's not just Jesus Christ in you. You have become part of, check this out. You have become a part of, this is amazing truth. 
you have become a part of Jesus. Do you know what that means? Here's what it means. Here's the church. Here's what you signed up for. If you want to intelligently commit to Christ, check this out. It's not an individual relationship with God where he meets your needs. When you become a Christian, you know what you decided? You decided to join a living organism of other people who are also part of this body of Christ called the church. You become linked and you become joined to them, whether you like it or not, you see. Committing to be a Christian is not a solitary individual thing where I got committing to be a Christian is saying, I am not only committing to follow Jesus for what he's done, but I recognize that I'm becoming part of, enmeshed with a larger body of believers around the world called the church, the body of Christ, and recognize that I can't grow as a Christian on my own. I can't, I can't survive as a Christian on my own. I can't do anything as a Christian on my own. Just as ludicrous it is for a part of my body, my hand, arm, to be cut off doing this whole thing, it's not going to survive. The body of Christ says, you are a part of it. You are linked to it. You are joined to it, whether you like it or not. And unless you recognize that and live this out, you're not living the Christian life. Do you get that? Do you get that? I mean, this is something that we've been trying to hammer away over and over again. But this is the reason why it's so hard. See, when you become a part of this, there are lots of people that are part of this. People that you don't like. People that you wouldn't care to be with. People that you don't want to be in community with. But it's gloriously messy when you go, but they're a part of me and I'm a part of them. And we're joined together. So how do we figure this out? How do we do this together? Do you recognize that? Do you recognize? Some of you guys, if you're saying individual relationship with God, I'm doing my own thing. This whole thing with Jesus being a part of this body. Ah, take it or leave it. There's no take it or leave it. Jesus, church, inseparable. Jesus, church, inseparable. I heard this quote from somebody who goes, you know, that, but that, that's just offensive to me because I hate the church. Man, everything about the church. St. Augustine, I think he said it, right? The church is a great whore, but she is also your mother. Welcome to family. Do you, see, here's the thing. Our church and church in America, we're so far from it. You know why? Because more than half of you guys, I would dare to say, it's not just about what you're doing, what you're your perspective, more than half of you is like, I have my own relationship with Jesus, thank you very much. There's not a community of people I'm accountable, community of people I'm doing life with, but you know, that's an add-on to the Christian life, not if you knew what the Bible said. Not if you knew what the Bible said. Mm-mm, mm-mm. There's no add-on. Mm-mm. Do you understand the ramifications of that? Do you understand the ramifications of that? Okay. All right, Jesus, you can go on top of God. We're almost done here. Well, just to make this maybe more uh, theologically accurate, we should do this, right? Okay. All right. That's what happened Good Friday, you know. Lastly, let's end with this. Lastly. Woo, Christian conversion. <laughs> Involves dealing with stubborn facts. Michael, am I talking even faster than I normally do? Okay. I'm just, I, I, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I talk fast when I, when I have, for two reasons. I talk really fast when I've got so much that I want to say and I can't get it all in. I talk really fast when I get really excited. So I talk fast most of the time. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Christian conversion involves dealing with stubborn facts. You know what, guys? Let me just tell you. One of the guys that came up to say, today I choose to follow Jesus. You know what he said? I asked him, I said, what was it about? This was the part that got to him. Now, I got to tell you, when I was preparing this, you know, this part as I was, you know, encountering certain facts, I'm like, oh, God, this seems kind of, you know, intellectual, dry, uh, I'm like, is it going to reach? This guy comes and says, that right there. Why? What does it mean? Christian conversion, you guys. Christian conversion. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about, you know, a kind of new experience in life. Christian conversion 
only happens when you are face-to-face and encounter a stubborn, historical, undeniable, empirical fact that Jesus Christ lived, he died, but then he rose again. Oh, check this out. That's at, the, that's at the center. Now, for those of us that, you know, grew up in churches where, for those of us that grew up in churches, you know, where Easter was just kind of like once a year, and Easter was like even half of Easter, you know, it, was just a, it wasn't really. Check this out. If we are believing people, shouldn't we talk about this every Sunday? Huh? Shouldn't we talk about this every Sunday with the cross and the resurrection? Check this out. Paul's conversion story is told three times. Three times. Book of Acts. Every single time, verses 7 through 9, his companions are mentioned and what they experienced. His companions. His compa- in other words, his companions that were with Paul, they're going, they also, the Bible says, Paul says, they saw the light, although they couldn't quite make out what it was. They heard the sound, although they couldn't quite make out what the sound was. Three times Paul says, in this very public document, by the way, and I'll get to this, written about 20, 30, 35 years after this whole thing, he says, he says, they, my companions, the guy, my compadres, the ones that were going with me to Damascus, they experienced everything. They saw the, they saw the light, even though they could quite make it out. They heard the sound. They were knocked flat too. Why does he say that? Here's the reason why. Paul is saying, I've got witnesses. I went through, I got witnesses. You want to cross-examine them? You want to know what really happened? Check it out. They're still living today. He mentions them in this document to say what he experienced. Can you imagine? What if Paul was just kind of a massive, you know, some, some sort of a psychological trip? You know what I mean? He's sitting there going, and Paul's going, whoa! And, and the other guys are like, what the heck is wrong with you? What happened? Ah! He was like, what is he but what happened? What happened? He's doing that, and the rest of them are also going, what's that sound? Let me show you. About 32 years after, Paul writes a letter, a public document to a church in Corinth, okay, to a group of believers. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one I'm newly born. Why does Paul do that? Now, you guys, think. Christians, none. Think. Think for a moment. Engage your mind. Why does Paul say that? He says this in a very public document because there is major pressure in that world to snuff out Christianity. And Saul's conversion is one of these stories that's really catching on. That guy used to be persecuted Christians. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Got to snuff it out. Paul writes this 32 years later. Why? Why does he mention all this 500 people? Why? Because it's a public document at the time in which people could go, did it really happen? Paul could say, go check it out, man. They live in Galilee. Galilee? All right. We go to Galilee. Hey, did it really happen? Yeah, it happened. I saw him. Really? You saw it? You staked your life on it? I staked my life. Anybody else see it? Yeah. Joseph on the next street. Joseph. Did you see it? You actually saw him alive? Like you ate with the top? I did. Who else saw it? My grandmother. Go check it. My grand. At the time, he writes in a public document so that people could go around and verify the fact that it really happened. Nobody was able to come up with an alternate explanation. Okay, so there's a couple. It was a legend. The disciples made up legend. You don't write legends 30 some years after it actually happened. Do you know what I mean? Like today we have the legends of athletes, right? They did these amazing feats. <laughs> the legend will not grow if it's not true. Why? Well, let's review that tape, shall we? 1972. It never happened. Look at that, man. He got sacked and dropped the ball and they lost the game. 
Legends do not develop 32 years after the event. Legends develop 100, 150 years when the people that could either verify or disprove it are dead and gone. And Paul and Luke say, 30 years later, check it out if you really don't believe us. Some people say it was a hallucination. Since when's the last time you saw 500 person people hallucinate at the same time? Hallucinations don't happen in groups, do they? It's a hoax. It's a hoax that they made up. It's not a hoax. Why would you die being torn by the lions for a hoax? Why would you do that? Why would somebody die being burned at the stake for a hoax? Why would anybody die for a lie? I'm going to talk more about this next Sunday because it's one of the critical components of Easter. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You have to realize, if you're not a Christian or you're a Christian going, you know, I just have a hard time believing that, then here's what C.S. Lewis said this over and over again. He says, then you need to come up with an alternate explanation of why hundreds of people who would have never believed, never believed in some sort of resurrection, actually came to believe and they changed their world. Come up with an alternate explanation if you don't think that what Paul writes about and Luke writes about really happened, as I say. Christians, man with this. David, you can come on up. Application as we go into this Passion Week. Christians, can you guys look up here for a second? We, we, we've hit on this many, many times throughout this book. When the disciples and the apostles preached about the gospel of Jesus Christ, even when they healed somebody, they never ever said, believe in Jesus, because if you do, you'll experience healing. If you do, you'll have peace in your life. If you do, your life will go well. What did they do? What did they say? Over and over again, they say, believe in Jesus, because he died, he was buried, he rose again. It's true. wonder what would happen to American evangelicalism if we heeded the advice of the apostles and say, believe in Jesus, not because it'll make you feel better or it'll be a good experience. Believe in Jesus because he is a son of God that came to die for the sins of the world and three days later he rose again from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death once and for all. Believe on Christ because it's true. It's true. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you a Christian because it's true? Or because, you know, It helps me get through difficult times. Can I just say this? No amount of self-effort, self-philosophy will ever help you get through difficult times if you don't at the core of your heart believe that Jesus Christ defeated Satan, sin, death once and for all, and he is going to come one day to renew and fix everything or there will be no more suffering. Where's your hope? Christian, where's your hope? If you come to Jesus in order to have your needs met, you will neither meet him or have your needs met because Christianity is not about saying, I need my needs met. Christianity is about encountering an untamed God who says, I am who I am. It's conquered Din, Satan, sin, and death once and for all. If you're not a Christian, can I just speak to you for a second? Can I speak to you for a second? Will you give me just a minute or two? If you're not a Christian. See, I talk to a lot of non-Christians who say, you know, it's just hard to believe. And I go, will you please take a look at the evidence? Take a look at the evidence. Don't ignore it. Look at the evidence. I don't want to look at the evidence. Then you'll never become a Christian. To which some people go, I don't want to become a Christian. Well, it's a different issue, whole matter, you know? But if you're interested in Christianity, you're here. You're listening to all this. You're going, oh, God. But Peter, I'm just having a hard time just reconciling, you know, somebody who came, the son of God, took out flesh and bone. He lived the life we should have lived. Died the day we should have died. He rose again from the dead. I just, can I, can I just press you a little bit and say this a closed mind is not half open to what ultimately is truth what do i mean 
maybe at the end of the day, it's not about, I can't rationally come to believe. Maybe for some of us at the end of the day, it's about, I don't want to give up control over my life. Maybe for some of us real honest who'd say, evidence, I could take you to leave of Peter at the end of the day. It's about the fact, I, I don't want to give up control of my life, man. I'm thank you, happy. Where are, are you really? Is it work, working out for you? You being, you know, control of your life, God of your life? I don't know. Or is there a path of destruction of relationships? Some of you sitting here going, I don't want, I don't want God. I don't want to get control. I just want to go, how about how about you try not being your own God for a little bit and see how that works out? You know what I'm saying? Just kind of maybe, maybe, maybe we weren't created to have the universe center around us. Maybe. And that's where healing is. You can't say if it's true for me. Christianity comes and says it's true for everybody. He died. He rose. And he's coming back. <laughs> yeah. So one person is like, yeah, you know, I'm feeling this today. If you and I got this, man, we'd be jumping out, hooting and hollering. I'm telling you. But that's why I preach you every Sunday, right? Because eventually one who becomes who, who, you know, and who, 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 you know. I need to end this way. I need to end this way. I need to end this way. There are those of you here. And it's 9 o'clock. There are those of you here. Listen very carefully. You are not a Christian. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean by that. It's not that you've been going to church, Catholic, you know, or eight, nine years old. You were baptized. I'm not that many of those. Here's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is somebody who says, God, you died for my sins and the sins of the world. You were buried and you rose again on the third day. And you are coming back to judge and to restore all things and to make it new. I believe that. I believe that. I believe that. I believe that. And secondly, being a Christian is about saying, God, it is a lot worse than I think. It's not just about doing bad things. I have been at the center of my life. I've been in control of my life. I've been doing things that I want to do. It's been about my self-will all my life. And I'm tired of it. I can't live like that anymore. It's hurting me. It's hurting other people. It's destroying my soul. Becoming a Christian is saying, I no longer want to live with myself at the center. Because that's death, man. And then lastly, y'all didn't know, right? And then lastly, it's saying, it's not just about me becoming a Christian, you know, quiet prayer, close my eyes, thank you very much, I got Jesus in my heart, I'm going out. It's about saying, oh no, I am committing myself, I recognize, to this larger church family called the body of Christ, who is now going to become my brothers and sisters and walk this journey with me. Walk this journey with me, because I can't do this on my own. I was never meant to do this on my own. So this morning... As I did at the 9 o'clock. I want to give an invitation. I'm not going to call it, you know, the A word. We call it altar call. Because we don't have an altar in our church. You know what I mean? It's not an altar. Anyway, I digress. Okay. I'm going to give an invitation. And it's simple. See, we don't make a big deal of it in our church. That's why I say everybody eyes opened. Everybody eyes. Because you need to see those people that want to be your brother, your sister, be a part of the church family. Okay. Now, that's you. That's you today. That's you today. That's, not to asking for recommitment. You know, I failed you again. No, no, no. That's another whole sermon in and of itself. God is gracious towards you. You commune with God. I'm asking for those people who have never in front of a group of people, body of believers, said, this is what I believe. 
this is what I choose to follow. Will somebody join me? Stand up from where you're at. Come down. Before you even reach up here, I'm going to give you a big hug. And once we've given everybody an opportunity, we're going to have the rest of the church family come up, embrace you, pray with you, pray for you. It'll be great. It'll be great. Anybody? Father, we thank you for your work here this morning. And God, as we enter this week, as we enter this week, God, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray, God, to anchor our heart and our souls firmly fixed on you. That throughout this week, you would remind us, Lord, of the work that you have done and of who we are in you. God, We pray that as we leave this place, we would leave as forgiven, as redeemed, as saved. As saved. Hope-filled people. For Christ is crucified. And he is risen. Father, as we come and live out our lives this week, pray that you would use us to be kingdom witnesses wherever we are, wherever we go. Wherever or where we go, help us to witness and testify about your amazing, wonderful works. And we declare it here in the city to the rest of this world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, say amen and amen. We'll see you guys throughout this week's gathering at the church office. Friday here for Good Friday service and Easter Sunday. Invite your family and friends. We'll see you here next week.